Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Nat Bletter talking about chocolate on the mind. Dr. Bletter is the co-founder and flavormeister of Madre Chocolate, a Hawaii-based chocolate company. Dr. Bletter has 22 years of experience in botany, documenting exotic fruits and vegetables, gathering food in the wild, herbal and traditional medicine, and exploring Asia, South America, Central America, and Africa. He has a PhD in ethnobotany from the City University of New York and New York Botanical Garden, where he researched medicinal plants of Peru, Mali, and the Guatemalan Mayans, ethnobotany, taste-modifying plants, and stimulating plants such as cacao. Dr. Bletter postdoc at University of Hawaii at Manoa, researching plants and migration in Thailand and Laos. This background has spurred him to start a traditional ingredient, high-oxidant artisanal chocolate company called Madre Chocolate, which has won numerous awards for high-quality, unique chocolate bars. As an experienced gardener, grower, grafter, along with his enthusiasm for enjoying the outdoors, exploring exotic fruits, and cultivating local food to enjoy all the flavors of life, this has led him to start Natty by Nature at www.nattybynature.net for edible landscaping, foraging, and cooking on Oahu and his YouTube channel on medicinal and edible plants. Dr. Bletter talks with us today about his journey into the world of chocolate and about the psychoactive qualities of chocolate and other plants that have been used to enhance people's well-being. Nat, thanks for being here today and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, I like to start by finding out a little bit more about the personal story of the guests, and you have an interesting personal story. So, you know, maybe tell us a little bit more about what, in, what inspired you to get into this field of ethnobotany and plants and um, your interest in this area. Where did you come from? Sure. Um, yeah, it's kind of ironic that that I got so deeply into plants and especially Amazonian plants since I grew up in Manhattan in the middle of the big city. <laughs> they don't have an Amazon rainforest in Central Park, huh? No, but I did wind up getting a lot of my food from Central Park, which we can talk about later <laughs> Great. in terms of my foraging. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a long journey here and I feel like I kind of change careers every 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So my first career was as a, a computer programmer and developer and virtual reality researcher in Silicon Valley. So also very far from foraging and plants and the rainforest. But where I went to uh, college at Stanford, there was an amazing array of edible uh, fruit trees around the campus. Mm-hmm. And I had a girlfriend who introduced me to all those who was from Taiwan. And she taught me what loquat and kumquat and and pink peppercorn and all these random plants that were all over the campus were. And then while I was working in Silicon Valley, I got even deeper into it uh, when she got me a a book on foraging by wild man Steve Brill, Mm -hmm. who leads foraging tours all over New York City. Uh, And I started going out for my lunch hour instead of being in a hermetically sealed office surrounded by a bunch of blinking computers in the lab. I would 
go out and bike around Menlo Park and Redwood City and and Palo Alto, and I would forage for on all the fruit trees that were there. And I don't know if you you probably know this being from the Bay Area that that uh, much of that area was was fruit orchards like cherry and peach and sure. apricot in the past. So there's some remnants of that, especially in people's backyards. And a lot of people didn't even know what they had in their yard, and they mm-hmm. would just let me uh, forage it uh, without even asking for anything. So I'd go up to people who had this beautiful fig tree that was dripping with ripe fruit, and I'd say, hey, do you mind if I take a few of these figs? They're like, oh, no, no, go ahead. They're messing up the <laughs> the paint job on my car. You should take as much as you want. I don't even know what the hell they are. Um, I'm like, okay, that that's great. I only charge like five dollars a pound to haul them away for you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I would I would try to tell them what it was. And there's mulberry trees and apricot, and one of my favorites is pineapple guava or feijoa, which uh, people have as an ornamental hedge all around mm-hmm. the Bay Area, but very few people know that has this delicious, pretty kind of tropical tasting fruit. Um, so. It's it's best to eat it when it falls off the off the bush, and so I would crawl around the front of people's yards on the sidewalk and just collect all the fallen fruit there. So that got me much more into foraging, and then I kind of had a, a a bit of an epiphany in the late '90s. Uh, luckily, just before the first dot bomb, mm-hmm. and I felt like I was only making you know, a computer program that maybe five people would use and more likely than not, it would have a maybe difficult influence on their life and having to learn all this esoteric, how to use this very esoteric program. And I wanted to have a more positive influence. Uh, So I took a sabbatical for about a half year to travel around Southeast Asia uh, and, and South Asia. So I went to Bali, Thailand, Hong Kong, India and Nepal Mm -hmm. and I loved it so much there and I spent almost zero time in any of the tourist destinations I spent most of my time in the in the markets there just talking to people like oh what's this really cool Mm -hmm. fruit like how do you eat mangosteen how do you grow it or what's this medicine that you use and that got me more interested in in plants than than I already was and uh, my girlfriend that I was traveling around Southeast Asia with, she got a really bad case of Giardia and, and didn't know it. And she went to see the, the Dalai Lama's doctor uh, in Dharamsala in, in northern India. And he, by just taking her pulse in six places and looking at her tongue and I think just looking at a urine sample, not even any doing t- any tests on it, she he figured out that she had had uh, she had Giardia at the time without her saying a, a whole lot more, and that she had it was a recurrence of a case from seven years ago, and she had told me that she had been in 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 southern India seven years prior to that, and gotten really really badly sick and didn't know what it was at the time and eventually went away, well she, so she thought but it was coming back. Uh, so he had kind of diagnosed all that amazingly and just gave her a few herbs to take and it got rid of it really quickly. I was like, wow, that's 
incredible that they could do such accurate diagnosis mm -hmm. and and treat it so well with these herbs. So I was like, oh, this this could be really interesting, and I feel like a really mm -hmm. positive influence that could have on people's lives. And because I was, you know, a scientist and an engineer, I didn't want to just take it as like a you know, solely on faith. So I wanted to do something involving medicinal plants, but that had a lot of uh, backup, science backup to it. So I decided to go back to grad school to get my PhD in ethnobotany, which uh, if people haven't heard of it before, is like a combination of anthropology and botany. So any plant that people use in their daily life, whether it's for clothing or construction or medicinal or food uh, or ceremony. And for my, for my thesis, I researched medicinal plants for things like diabetes and other autoimmune diseases, as well as parasitic diseases like malaria and chagas and sleeping sickness. And I was kind of comparing and synthesizing plants used in Peru, Guatemala, and Mali in West Africa. Uh, so that got me even more immersed in medicinal plants. And I went to, to grad school at the New York Botanical Garden and City University of New York. So I was back in my hometown of Manhattan. Um, and to keep the keep myself in nature, I would I would do foraging in all the parks in in around New York City. And I, in the summer, I would often get maybe like fifty percent of my food from from Central Park and other parks near me. Wow! And I started leading foraging tours around Central Park because there's amazing selection of mulberries and persimmons and june berries and all these great edibles that most people don't know about so mm -hmm. yeah so y you sounds like you got your start in foraging in central park and i know you do that and we're jumping ahead a little bit but that's something that you do here in hawaii as well yes know? definitely I imagine the foraging is the plants are probably different but is the process kind of the same and how you go about foraging yeah yeah totally and there's uh, it's it's a little easier in Hawaii, uh, where I've been for 12 years now, because uh, it's kind of all year, whereas in, in New York or in most temperate areas, you can probably only forage maybe six to eight months of the year. So it's a lot easier to do, and there's obviously a lot more a lot more gardens even within Honolulu than there are in Manhattan, so... There's uh, it's a little easier just to find street trees even with with grapefruit on them. Sure. So and stuff just grows like crazy here, right? I yes. Mean, just stuff is growing and fruits. Yes. You, you can smell the fruit probably before you can see it in Hawaii most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Often your best way to find a grapefruit tree is to keep your eyes on the ground. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then and then look up, right? Because it must have fallen from something pretty close by. Yeah. Exactly. And you see purple, or red or orange stained sidewalk there's there's a good bit there's something yummy up above you yeah you know i was thinking about what you were saying i um i think you know that i grew up in palo alto i think mm -hmm. we mentioned that before and yep. we grew up with a loquat tree in our yard and awesome. that sucker was just putting out loquats like you can't believe like i think we must have overdosed on loquats during the loquat season wait you actually ate them you, yes <laughs> <laughs> most most people I know from California say, "Oh yeah, I know loquat. I used to throw those at my brother or sister all the time, well, but we, I never tasted it." <laughs> well, we we probably did that too. Okay. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that having um, traveled in Southeast Asia like you that 
loquat is the highest thing on my list of uh, yummy fruits, mm-hmm. uh, eat, having eaten mangosteens and durians and whatnot. But I know when you're eight years old and you're hungry, you know, there's loquats to eat. Yep. No, they can be really good, but there's a lot of the ones in California are kind of weedy, uns- mm-hmm. unselected varieties. So they, they're often very sour and, and not always very much flesh, but if, if you get a good variety, they can be pretty awesome. Like yeah. a cross of a peach and a pear, I kind of describe the flavor as. Yeah, that was sort of what it was like. I, I remember also growing up picking this um, this sour grass that we used to pick and mm. suck the sour out of. I, I guess that's probably a common California weed or whatnot. Did it look like uh, clover kind of? Yellow flowers? Yeah, actually, I think so. I think so. Yeah, that's oxalis or wood sorrel or some of its other names. And that yeah. grows here, too, mm-hmm. in Hawaii. That's pretty common all across the world, practically. Yeah, okay. So, so, um, so Nat, obviously chocolate has become a big part of your life. And so let's segue into chocolate. Sure. Um, and, you know, part of this show is we're going to be talking a little bit about the value that plants have on mood and well-being. And so... Uh, we could start with chocolate as a big part of what, what you do and what you're into. And we'll talk more later on in the show about some other kinds of plants uh, and how they could be, um, how they have been used for the mind and for mood as well. Yep. But uh, chocolate, let's start with chocolate. Okay. Well, how did you get into chocolate? That was kind of a distraction from my thesis and it turned into a, into a blossoming career. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I was actually introduced to it in terms of the, in terms of the mood boosting effects of chocolate. So while I was working on my thesis in medicinal plants, I had a Mayan archeologist friend, Cameron McNeil, and she was a classmate at, at City University of New York. She was editing a book on traditional uses of cacao in Latin America, and she said, I don't have anyone writing about South America. I know you work down there. Do you want to write the chapter on, on South American uses of cacao? And I was like, well, I know I love chocolate, but I don't know anything about it academically uh, in terms of research. Um, so I don't know if I'd be the best person. And after a year of her trying to urge me to write that with the help of my advisor, Doug Daly, who's really into chocolate and all, all kinds of food. And he does his research in Brazil mostly, so he knows the origins of cacao really well. Uh, so he said, oh, let's write it together. It'll be really fun. And so then I started on a three-year digression from my <laughs> thesis uh, that I got really interested and excited about and um, sort of mapped out all the the psychoactive compounds in in cacao and its relatives there's a few uh, lesser known relatives like jaguar cacao and kupuasu that are used in south america but you don't mm-hmm. see in the states much so there's there's lots of varieties of cacao that that's an important thing yeah not only varieties but also other species too I so see. yeah and so I found out in my research that there was about 13 different psychoactive compounds in the cacao. And that's probably some of the reason that, that we love chocolate so much. At the time, a lot of people were arguing that we just like chocolate because it, it is sweet and it has fat in it, which we respond to just as a dietary need. But then as people delved into it more, they realized that things like the caffeine and the theobromine, which are both stimulants, uh, certain people can respond to really well. 
Then there's compounds like, I want to clarify that when I say psychoactive, that's different from psychedelic mm-hmm. or, or entheogenic or hallucinogenic compounds. Right. So how, how do we define psychoactive versus psychedelic? So, so psychoactive is just the general category of, of compounds that can have any effect on the, on the brain. And, mm-hmm. um, and that would be caffeine. Um, would be yeah, exactly. That, right? Stimulants, narcotics. And, and psychedelics are, are a subcategory of psychoactive plants. And the psychedelics, where I often like to, sometimes they're called hallucinogens, but I, I don't really like that word because that's kind of a, a little bit disparaging in terms of it, it means seeing things that are not there. Um, so I like psychedelic a little better, which means it's, um, I forget the Latin definition of psychedelic. Well, it probably has something to do with um, an altered state of consciousness and reality, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. Without necessarily having a hallucinatory experience. Right, right. Something like that, right. So back to chocolate, it has both uh, psychedelic or entheogenic uh, psychoactive compounds as well as other categories like stimulants. So it has a dopamine precursor. It has... Uh, phenylethylamine, like the street drug MDMA or ecstasy. It has tryptamine alkaloids, like in the hallucinogenic. No, I went saying that word that I said I didn't like. <laughs> psychedelic. The, the psychedelic brew ayahuasca from the Amazon. Uh, a few of these lesser known kind of serotonin analogs. And of course, they're in minute, minute amounts. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think most people eat a chocolate bar and start tripping. Right. But you got to think in combination that these 13 different psychoactive compounds are going to have some, some effect on your mood. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I was researching, it was starting to come out that definitely the theobromine, which is a s- stimulant related to caffeine, first they had thought that people don't really respond to it at all or they, don't, they can't detect when there's theobromine in something or not. But then they redid the test on a, a larger group, and they picked people who were self-avowed chocophiles. And I, I like to use that word rather than chocoholic. I feel like chocoholic <laughs> is a dirty word because that implies that it's addictive and that it's bad for you, whereas uh, I think chocolate is really good for you. So I prefer the term chocophile. Sure. So they redid the study on uh, some people who are chocophiles, and they found that they could detect not only the presence or absence of theobromine in, they kind of made these like fake chocolate bars that had theobromine or not in them, and they could detect not only if it was there, but actually like differing amounts of the theobromine. Well, that's interesting because I imagine that, so theobromine is kind of an activating, stimulating compound, and yep. so is caffeine. Yeah. So, um, is there a way to differentiate between the two and the and the content of the chocolate? Yeah, and and it's a little bit of a misconception that chocolate has a lot of caffeine. It has minute amounts. I think you'd have to eat like three or four large dark chocolate bars to equal even mm-hmm. the amount of caffeine in a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. But in combination with theobromine, which is it's in the same chemical category of uh, xanthine alkaloids, they're very synergistic. So having the two together will have a very strong effect that's greater than the sum of the parts. 
-hmm. And theobromine, if you're really in tune with your body, you could probably tell it apart from caffeine in that theobromine is more of a heart stimulant, whereas caffeine is more of a brain stimulant. Mm. So... And they always say, like, chocolate goes to your heart and is related to love. It's maybe it's because it's... <laughs> because <laughs> of theobromine. Yes, exactly. And right. it is also a strong diuretic, but I think caffeine does that too. Yeah. And chocolate is one of the few plants in the world that has theobromine, aside from mate, yerba mate. Yerba mate from Argentina, yeah, right? Yeah, I think has a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, chocolate is the, and cacao is the highest in it. And in combination with that caffeine, it's going to have a strong effect. So your um, research and work on this, was this ultimately your dissertation for graduate school? No, it's just a, a three-year distraction. Okay. And I got very interested in, in that, the stimulating side of things in terms of why chocolate was discovered. The use of the seed of the cacao pod was discovered in Central America even though the, the plant was originally from South America in the Amazon. So if, you, if you've ever seen a, a fresh cacao pod off the tree, you crack it open, there's this amazing white pulp surrounding the seeds. I describe it as tasting like mangosteen or lychee or guanabana, or for mainlanders who don't know all those tropical fruit, maybe watermelon Jolly Ranchers is the most appropriate description. Mm. So it's thought that for millennia, the cacao was just used for that fruit in South America, and uh, they were just eating it fresh off the seeds or making a beer or wine out of it, out of the fermented juice. And if you go to Brazil today, every corner has a smoothie shop on it, and every smoothie shop there has has a list of about 100 tropical fruit you've never heard of that you can get in your smoothie, and they always have cacao fruit. So. They've oh, wow. retained this tradition. I don't know why Brazil, above most of the other South American countries, keep using the cacao fruit. So that is, we think, how it was originally used. And it wasn't until it was moved up further up in into Central America that people figured out, oh, you know, this seed that we've been throwing out for thousands of years, uh, we could actually make something pretty tasty with it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get sad thinking about how many chocolate bars were wasted <laughs> when people <laughs> were chucking the seeds. <laughs> so making up for lost time by eating as much chocolate as I can. There you go. Doing my part. Yeah. Um, well, let's, so, so um, you started a chocolate company called Madre Chocolate. Mm -hmm. Could we talk a little bit about that? Sure. I started dabbling in chocolate in New York in my tiny little apartment. After that book came out, some friends in San Francisco were like, oh, that's nice that you did all that research on chocolate. We don't really want to read your thick academic tome about chocolate. Can you just make us some? We know that you <laughs> like to cook, and uh, you must have figured out how to make chocolate in all your research if you're looking uh, looking into it for three years. And I was like, no, actually, I haven't ever made a chocolate bar, but we should try. So I went down to the local co-op their rainbow grocery in the mission i got some cacao nibs which are becoming more available and we threw them in a coffee grinder and a food processor with some sugar and whizzed it up and it made you know a pretty crude chocolate bar kind of like a mexican drinking chocolate but it tasted great and i was like yeah i should make more of this so i started making them just in my kitchen for kind of friends and uh sort of holiday uh gift events. And then I moved out to Hawaii 12 years ago to do a postdoc at the University of Hawaii. In uh, I was working in Thailand and Laos, more on food plants and 
as well as medicinal plants and how they're moved around the globe, but still not focused on chocolate. But luckily, I was in the same building as the as the most popular lab on campus. It's the coffee, cacao, and kava lab. Mm. So talking about three psychoactive plants, that's that's three right there that are pretty key. Sure. So everyone would love to go down there because the professor who ran the lab, Skip Bittenbender, he would serve great local coffee in the morning, and then in the early afternoon, he'd be whipping up a batch of chocolate (laughs) that you could go taste, and then in the late afternoon, he'd have a kava circle that I usually went to because I was already very interested in kava, which is a Pacific Island psychoactive Mm -hmm. plant in the black pepper family that's kind of more relaxant than a stimulant. Mm-hmm. And But I started to meet all the cacao farmers that were here in Hawaii, the few that were here at the time, and and the one or two chocolate makers on the island. I was like, oh, you know, screw New York. Can't grow cacao there. So I decided to make chocolate here instead. So just about 10 years ago, I started Madre Chocolate, kind of focusing on that, both the traditional use of chocolate in South America and all the cool kind of ingredients that they add into their chocolate to make it more foamy or or have have slightly different spice taste or uh, even have different colors and as well as trying to work with the cacao farmers in Hawaii to sort of get them up to speed because it's a very new new thing for Hawaii it's only been grown for about 20 years or so in earnest You've been running Madre for, what, about 10 years now? Mm-hmm. Something yep. like that? This is our 10-year anniversary just last month. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And I know I've eaten some of your chocolate bars. My family has enjoyed your chocolate bars. They're amazing. I'm glad. Um, Do you want to have some more now? <laughs> did you bring some chocolate? Of course. Oh, my gosh. I can't go anywhere without it. <laughs> sure. Let's try some chocolate. What do you have? As you can see, I have, I have a bunch of uh, stuff wrapped up in foil and when I was first testing out stuff, I used to carry these around and I'd give them to friends on uh, like sitting in public parks and they always thought I was involved in a drug deal. <laughs> hey, you want to try some chocolate? <laughs> right, exactly. This is a new one. I don't think you've ever tasted. This is one we're doing with um, 21 Degrees Farm mm-hmm. in uh, Kahulu where we do our farm tours. It's a rose cardamom and mm. and coffee bar so this will be w, doubly stimulating because it has both the coffee mm. and the chocolate yeah so cardamom is um if i recall correctly that's a a common um seed that that you eat after meals in indian restaurants mm-hmm. is that right yep yeah because i'm as i'm as i'm munching on this i'm i'm imagining finishing my meal at an indian restaurant right yeah so they really... they often give you both cardamom and fennel as a digestive that's right yep Mm -hmm. and they're also in the in the main meal too Mm -hmm. and cardamom is a key spice in chai in the chai masala Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the uh, spice tea mixture and also we made this for a middle middle eastern farm to table dinner that they had and everyone really loved it Mm -hmm. um so it's used in like turkish coffee where they put uh cardamom in there yeah, actually, I, I could imagine having a, a cup of Turkish coffee with this. So mm-hmm. what, what percent cacao would this be, this, this bar? This is a 70% dark, and this mm-hmm. is made with the cacao grown over on the windward side in, on Oahu. So it's super local. Some of the rose petals in that even came from my neighbor down the street. So mm-hmm, I'm trying mm-hmm. to use as much local ingredients as possible. And that's one of the reasons we named ourselves Madre 
it means mother in Spanish because we are inspired by the motherland of chocolate in Central America. So we have a lot of traditional recipes like chipotle allspice or this rare spice from Oaxaca called rosita de cacao that we put in our chocolate. Then it's also madre means that we care for Mother Earth. So mm -hmm. we try to use local ingredients as possible, recyclable or compostable packaging. And then the last meaning of Madre is that I found out when I was doing research with the Maya in Guatemala that my name, Nat, means mother in Mayan. No so, kidding. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> funny. When I introduced myself, they all started giggling. I was like, what's so funny about my name? I'm like, you're not a mama. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fitting for what you do. Well, that was really super tasty. I mean, I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the variety of <clears throat> flavors of the different bars you have. And the things that go into them, and without revealing any trade secrets, um, how do you go about coming up with ideas for flavors for the chocolate bars? They're very unique. Yeah, we try to do something different, not just your usual, you know, mac chocolate-covered mac nuts or pine dried-up pineapples in right. there or something. So I try to think about where the cacao comes from and kind of blend it with flavors from that area of the world. Uh, so if we're using, you know, Guatemalan cacao, we're going to put more of the traditional Latin American flavors in there, like hibiscus. Mm. Uh, we make an horchata chocolate bar. That's really good. And I also try to think about the taste of the cacao. So just like with wine, there's a lot of terroir or sort of varying flavors. Even if you're growing the same variety in different places, it will taste very different. So Hawaiian cacao is very fruity. Uh, Latin American cacao can be kind of more nutty or spicy. Madagascar cacao is very raisiny and uh, stuff we've made from Indonesia and Melanesia has this very deep hazelnut kind of flavor. Mm -hmm. So if I was working with cacao from Indonesia, I probably wouldn't put something like passion fruit in it because that you'd have this nutty, fruity thing and it wouldn't blend so well together. Passion fruit goes great with the Hawaiian chocolate because it's so fruity uh, when it's grown here. And so I might use more of another kind of nut, like peely nut or nyali nut from Melanesia to go with their cacao. Got it. So it really sounds like it's important to have a knowledge of the subtleties of the taste of the cacao yep. and the kind of ingredients that would mix together with it well and, and exactly. come up with the ideas. Yeah. Um, and then is is the, I don't, know the, I don't know much about chocolate making, but is the chemistry of getting these ingredients to mix together and bond together or bind together, whatever you call it. Like, is that is that a complicated process with the different kinds that you try to make? It can be, yeah. We have to make sure everything is totally dry and completely dehydrated so we can't put any, like, fresh fruit or anything with water in there or any liquids. So we make a bourbon-infused chocolate and a gin-infused chocolate. Mm. So we have to do a few tricks to get that in there without the water um, because... Uh, you notice that that first bar you had was quite nice and shiny. Mm -hmm. um, this other bar, which is um, just a straight, I don't know how how many pounds of chocolate you want to eat during Ooh. the podcast. I don't know. <laughs> let's 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 make this a really long podcast. So I have a lot of opportunity to eat more chocolate. See your limit. So this is this looks like a almost like a little rock, like a little chunk of rock or something. Yeah. So this is untempered chocolate. Mm. So it has hasn't we haven't gone through the process of making it shiny. So it'll have a lower melting point. Uh, say it'll have a the same taste but a different flavor because this will will melt very quickly in your mouth so you get kind of mm. all the the nuances but very quickly so it'll be like fruity nutty chocolate done 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a tempered chocolate bar where we heat and cool and heat the chocolate to give it that nice snap and shine, it'll have a much higher melting point. And so you'll get, you'll get to enjoy that fruity and then nutty and then a chocolatey tail at the end mm-hmm. for, for a much longer time. Mm-hmm. And this is a, another windward grown cacao from, um, from Wayahole. Mm-hmm. Um, another really good one, but uh, I think without the confounding influence of the rose and coffee and cardamom, you can probably taste how fruity the Hawaiian chocolate is. Yeah, it's definitely fruity. Yeah, you know, really nice and sweet. It's, it's really delicious. So yeah, when we're doing when we're thinking about ingredients we're putting in, we have to make sure that there's no water and generally low oil, so we can mm-hmm. do that tempering process and give you a nice shiny bar. So even though that tastes great, people kind of shy away from it just because of the look. And, I, and it happens a lot in Hawaii because a lot of the chocolate that's shipped here is going to go through heat fluctuations and shipping. And so it'll wind up on the shelves here looking like that. And people might get uh, freaked out because it has this matte, unshiny finish. It kind of looks like it might have mold on it. But mm. I tell everybody you should tell all your friends that it's bad and they shouldn't eat it and then you enjoy it all <laughs> <laughs> well it's kind of like a, a mango steen or a durian they, they don't look that appetizing on the outside right True. but once you get on the inside they're delicious yep exactly let's move on from chocolate um but before we do that where can people get your chocolate if they want to try it? Well, probably the easiest for everyone listening, since I know everyone's not local. You have worldwide listeners that uh, can just go to our website, madrechocolate.com, and order it on there. And uh, you can get on our mail list and find out about new flavors. And we even have a limited edition bar club when we only make like 20 of some bar or something that you can you can get on the special mailing list and you get uh, six exclusive bars uh, every quarter with a whole tasting sheet on on where they come from and how how they compare to each other. And we usually have a theme like drinking chocolates or mm-hmm. all single origin dark chocolates. Um, if you're in Hawaii, on Oahu, we're at both the Kaka'ako and KCC Saturday Farmer's Markets. And we're a bunch of stores around the island like Whole Foods and Foodland and down to earth, et cetera, as well as uh, on other islands, Big Island, Kauai, Maui, all have us too. Mm-hmm. And you you have some stores on the mainland to carry your product. Yeah, right? you can look on our website yeah. and find where to get it on the mainland as well. Well, thank you for bringing in some chocolate for sure. me to sample and talking about it. Um, you know, really super interesting stuff. Let's shift a little bit. I want to talk about just in general uh, plants and um, psychoactive properties of plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, first, a disclaimer, I should probably get this out of the way that whatever we're talking about here on this show shouldn't be taken as medical advice. The content is for informational purposes only. And because each person is unique, you should consult with a healthcare professional for any medical questions. Um, anything that has psychoactive properties can affect people differently. And if you have any kind of medical conditions or whatnot, and you're wondering if the use of any psychoactive plants would be helpful for you, um, definitely consult a, a medical professional, right? I agree wholeheartedly. Psychoactive properties of plants that could affect one's mood in a beneficial sort of way. Mm-hmm. I, I know there's a few that you'd like to talk a little bit about that are popular ones, but you had mentioned kava earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what about kava? Yeah, that's a great one for, for relaxing. It's often called the Pacific Elixir. So it's originally from Vanuatu, where we've gone 
we have a five-day cacao boot camp once or twice a year where we teach cacao farmers how to make chocolate and we teach chocolate makers how to be cacao farmers mm-hmm. and we we've been hired by um Australian uh, NGOs to go and teach that in Vanuatu and Solomon Islands so I got to go to the the birthplace of kava and see how it was originally used it's used a lot like alcohol is in western society that it, it's a social lubricant just gets people talking no one drinks it for the taste, really. It's a root from the black pepper family, and it kind of numbs your mouth. Yeah, it's sort of chalky flavored. Yeah, right. It's a bit like like uh, eating muddy water. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a few tricks to make it taste a lot better. I make it with um, coconut milk and ginger, mm. uh, either fresher or powdered in there and the the ginger makes it taste a lot better and it helps mellow your stomach because some people can have a bit of a uh, averse stomach reaction to it and the active substances in kava are kava lactones and they are fat soluble Mm -hmm. so you can have a lot less if it's done in a in coconut milk Mm -hmm. than if it was just done in water as it is in many places and because those comp the active substances are fat soluble a lot of stores you'll see kava sold as a like in tea bags, which doesn't really make sense to me because just making a warm water infusion of it is not going to get those fat soluble substances out. So when they make it traditionally, they put it in like a cloth or fabric or the bottoms of coconut fronds that kind of act as a sieve, and they'll massage it in the water so you get kind of a foam on top or emulsion, mm-hmm. and then you've extracted the fat-soluble compounds into that water. But if you use coconut milk, it both tastes better, and it, it it's a lot more effective delivery mechanism. So if somebody wanted to tr- try drinking kava using kava, mm-hmm. really they need to try the traditional method of squeezing the, the powder with the water and getting getting the the stuff out of it, right? Yeah, I find that's a lot more effective. I mean, the making a tea of it will have some minor effect, but uh, I don't think you'll get the full experience because the stuff uh, that they have in Vanuatu, they, they have, you know, both that traditional preparation method, but they also have extremely potent varieties like Borogo, where you can have one or two cups and feel like you just had a bender at the bar, <laughs> but it does not have any bad side effects like alcohol does. So uh, you don't get the spins, you don't you don't puke, you don't wake up feeling crappy the next day. Mm-hmm. So it's much better for you. And there was a bit of a scare about 15 years or so ago when a German research group found that kava damaged the livers of mice that they gave an extraction of the kava to. Mm -hmm. But I always say that they did the wrong extraction of the wrong part of the wrong plant. So they took type of kava called tude that the folks in Vanuatu generally give to the tourists because they don't think much of it because it has this weird effect that it doesn't do much to you when you first have it. But when you wake up the next day, you have a cup of water and then you feel like you feel it full on. And then they took the above ground stem parts of the two-day plants, which they never used to make kava, and that they gave them, they sold them to the to the German researchers, maybe trying to pull one over on them. <laughs> <laughs> and then the German researchers did a acetone extraction on the kava aerial parts, and that is 
has no relation to how it's prepared traditionally. So the acetone is going to pull out all kinds of weird compounds that you're not getting in the water or coconut milk. And mm-hmm. then they gave massive amounts to the to the mice, and, and surprise, surprise, they had liver problems. Right. And I, I talked to my my uh, advisor here in Hawaii when that came out. I was like, how did you react to that to that study being released? It was like, oh, we went out to the local kava bar and had a few shells of kava to laugh at it <laughs> because we've been doing research in Polynesia and Melanesia for years, and we don't see scourges of people dropping dead from liver, liver failure there, and they, they use it, like, every day. So mm-hmm. I'm sure just uh, epidemiologically you would find people having a lot of liver failure if if that was really a bad effect the way they're using it sure so i wouldn't be scared of it although it's made it illegal in australia and i think england too mm-hmm. so unfortunately it's hard to get there but i've started to see in recent years kava bars popping up in like san francisco and new york and seattle i think a few places around the country mm-hmm. uh, i definitely wouldn't mix it with alcohol mm-hmm. so when i say a kava bar like it should just be, you know, kava, you know, with other things right. can be added to make it more palatable. It's not a bar where you have a martini and then chase it with the right. kava, right? Right, exactly. We were also talking a little bit about St. John's Ward. I know that's mm. something that has had some notoriety of as a uh, anti-depressing effects. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on St. John's Ward. I actually love to use it, but more for its antiviral properties. Mm. So um, it uh, that's a lesser known quality of it. It can, uh, both topically and internally, it can have some antiviral properties. Um, and there, it's been used for centuries in herbal medicine as an antidepressant. And just in the last 20 so or so years, there have been some more uh, clinical studies on it. And at first, it was a little bit inconclusive. There's some huge multi-arm NIH studies on it, but they found a lot of variability, so uh, it wasn't super conclusive. But just in like 2016 and 2017, a few more studies came out, and they found that it, it at least had better efficacy than, than placebo, often equal efficacy to prescription antidepressants like SSRIs, mm-hmm. like uh, Prozac. or. Do you have any thoughts about what the thought is about the active uh, constituents in St. John's work that would lead to a boost in mood? Um, yeah, they, they were trying to find more of the mechanism because that was a little bit confusing. And I think the main ones are hypericin is the one that's talked about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some related compounds to that, like uh, hyperferrin, and those all have that hyper in there, not because they make you hyper, but because the uh, the Latin name uh, or scientific name of the plant is hypericum perforatum. So I forget what that refers to, but it's probably just something about the way the leaves or the petals look. So mm-hmm. it's not going to, it might make you happier, but it's not going to make you hyper like caffeine. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not hyperactive. Exactly. Yeah. So those are uh, a few of the and uh, and related compounds are are thought to have some of the effect, but it has other good antioxidants like catechins that you find in green tea. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna ha- and quercetin uh, and ca- caffeic acid like in coffee. So it has some other 
beneficial compounds, not necessarily for mood, but also as antioxidants. Right. And the one warning about it is if you're taking it, it can cause photosensitivity. So Mm -hmm. there are certain other drugs, uh, even prescription drugs that can have that effect that you don't want to, especially for people in Hawaii or if you're even more, if you're visiting Hawaii and you're taking St. John's wort, you you don't want to go out in the sun unless you're completely slathered in sunblock. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So that's St. John's wort. And I know Mm -hmm. St. John's wort is sold all over the place. Is there any recommendations you would have about formulations of the, of the St. John's wort strengths, how it's packaged? Yeah, that's important thing to think about and and finding a reputable herb company because I think you can even get it at you know your big box drugstore right down the street now um, but they might not take a ton of care in how they prepare it and like with the kava I was mentioning that you want to think about the preparation and the the part of the plant that is is active um, and how it's extracted so I, I believe in the case of St. John's wort is also the, the oil-soluble compounds that are, are really going to be effective. So uh, you want to take it as a, a capsule mm-hmm. that you're including all the parts of the plant in and not just making a tea out of it where, mm-hmm. where you'd get only the water-soluble ones. Got it. I, I talk about that on my foraging tours too, that you, we can be looking at a plant where you can easily eat the fruit but the roots might kill you or or make you really sick or vice versa you know the leaves are fine uh, but only after you cook them whereas the stem you don't want to touch so so just as as an overarching thing i'm guessing you would agree with a concept that you shouldn't go out and just start eating things even if you know stuff might be edible because different parts of the plant maybe and others might not be absolutely yeah Yeah. i haven't lost anyone on my on my foraging (laughs) tours yet and i want to maintain that good record (laughs) great um any other um mood related plants that you think would be helpful to talk about yeah a few of my favorite ones um that i actually put in a a blend called dr leaves chill out herb tea. My last name, Bletter, means leaves in German, so I was destined to be a botanist. So that's why I call it Dr. Leaves. Mm-hmm. And I put, we don't have any St. John's wort growing here that's a temperate plant, but I put a bunch of the the local plants that it help you, not necessarily antidepressants, but they're anti-anxiety, anxiolytic compounds in them. So one of the biggest ones, a plant that's very popular here is passion fruit, passion flower, mm-hmm. or as it's locally called, lilikoi, mm-hmm. that has a compound passiflorine mm-hmm. in both the fruit and the leaves. And I learned when I was working in Peru that the parents would give the passion fruit to their kids to chill them out before bed. And uh, as adults, you can use the tea of the leaves as well. Mm. Might not be quite as tasty as the fruit for the kids, mm-hmm. but that has the uh, same or even more of that passiflorian in. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, uh, it's great uh, for sleep, because, not because it's directly a soporific. It doesn't uh, relax your body necessarily, but it's more like if your head is, if your mind is spinning before mm-hmm. you, and you just can't go to sleep, and counting sheep is not working. It'll just help chill you out. So, mm-hmm. so if one, so if one had a, a passion fruit vine, um, mm-hmm. how would one prepare the leaves? You do want to be a little careful. They have a 
cyanide producing compound in oh, them, cyanogenic that, glycosides. That doesn't sound good. No, luckily humans, uh, if they're well nourished, can break down cyanide pretty well uh, as compared to all other animals. So I think most of the people listening have enough protein in their diet that they don't need to worry about it. But you can um, dry the leaves and then that drives off all the cyanide producing compounds. So Got it. And, and are you? Did you say that the fruit itself has the passiflorine in it as yeah. well, just yeah. in smaller quantities? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you could have lilikoi fruit for dessert, and that will help you relax. And we, I've incorporated that into some of our chocolate. One of our most popular bars is a is a lilikoi mm-hmm. chocolate bar. Say after you have the coffee infused one, <laughs> if you can't sleep, you have the passion fruit chocolate. Got it. So yeah, you can just make a tea of the leaves from your, I just keep a few, a bunch dried in the cupboard to make tea when I'm going to sleep. And if you, if you want to get more advanced, you can make a tincture in alcohol or glycerin from the leaves. And then it just helps in that you're not having like a full cup of tea right before bed. So you don't have to wake up constantly to go to the bathroom if you're just having a little bit of tincture, which is much more concentrated. Mm-hmm. And I add a few other local plants into that to help with relaxing and, and sleep. So I put um, Jamaican vervain, which is a common uh, weed that if you go hiking anywhere in Hawaii, you've probably seen it has tiny little purple flowers about like a quarter inch wide. Um, it's in the mint family. So it might, or sorry, the sister mint of the mint family, the verbena family. So it might look a little bit mint-like. Uh, and the flowers you can eat. They're great in a salad. They taste like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people like to throw them in all kinds of veggie dishes. But the leaves have an anti-anxiety effect to them. Mm-hmm. Another invasive, I haven't used as much because it's a little harder to harvest, is the kahili ginger. The, those beautiful white fragrant flowers that you see on hikes. Those, oh, yeah. those are pretty invasive. You can suck the nectar out of the mm-hmm. flowers, kind of like honeysuckle, mm-hmm. but the both the flowers and I believe the root are supposed to have a anxiolytic effect as well. And we, when we make foods out of these invasive plants, we call it eat the enemy. So we've even made a chocolate bar with a invasive pink peppercorn or Christmas berry that we call <laughs> it eat the enemy bar. Well, see, well, there you go. There's these invasive species growing around Hawaii that we can actually find some helpful, helpful use of. Yep. Yeah. And my fourth, and I maybe should have listed it first because it's one of my favorite relaxing herbs, is a lemon balm. Mm. And just the smell of that alone can relax me. In summers, I'd go to visit my German grandma who would make me lemon balm tea every mm. night. And it just so it brings me back to my childhood. Yeah. But that has a, a strong relaxing effect as well as some good antiviral effects. Is, is lemon balm different than lemongrass? Yeah. There's a lot of plants that lemon scent. Lemonine is a pretty easy plant oil for the plants to manufacture. So you find it all over the plant kingdom and unrelated families. So mm-hmm. lemongrass is in the green or grass family. And that produces it. Lemon balm, lemon basil, lemon thyme. Those are all in the mint family. So they're they're at least related and all making it. And then, of course, lemons are in a completely different family of citrus. Mm -hmm. And there's a few other families that that will have that. There's a guava relative from Australia that smells like lemons, too. The limonene in the lemon balm makes it smell amazing and sort of takes you back in this uh, Proustian way of 
the smell memory, mm-hmm. but I think it's other compounds that's actually uh, the anxiolytic in the lemon balm because mm-hmm. I don't find that lemons relax me in the same way. Yeah. So these, what you're calling anxiolytics, from what I'm understanding, is that it has sort of a mentally calming effect, but not a sedating effect. Exactly. It's not, not something you would take like to put yourself to sleep necessarily, but maybe to to calm yourself, which might lead to sleep. Right. Yeah. What about sleep? I mean, are there um, plants that are actually sedating? Mm-hmm. That uh, what what would you suggest, or ones that are popular for that? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd use all those um, anxiolytic ones I just mentioned, especially if one of the main reasons you can't sleep is because of of nervousness or restlessness. But if it's more of a physical issue, popular plants that are put in sleeping compounds are hops. Mm-hmm. So you could have a, if you drink alcohol, you could even have a, a bottle of beer. I personally can't handle hops at all. It's way too bitter for me. Mm-hmm. You mean even, you're not a beer drinker? Not at all. Mm-hmm. No, because it has a lot of other compounds in it that make it extremely bitter. And, mm-hmm. and that seems to be the trend in current beer brewing is to make it as bitter as possible mm-hmm. with these IPAs and double IPAs and triple IPAs. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I can't do beer. I can stomach a, a pill if it has hops in it, where I don't have to taste it for too long. Mm-hmm. But even like a tea of hops is 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 problematic for me. Mm-hmm. Valerian is a muscle relaxant. That's mm. often in these sleep herb blends. Catnip, which you can steal from your your cat's catnip ball, has a relaxing effect on humans. So catnip catnip has an odd effect on cats. Right. A psychoactive effect on cats that yeah. it doesn't have on people, I assume. Yeah, it, well, it still has a psychoactive effect, just a very different one. Doesn't make you want to run around and <laughs> no. play with a ball. <laughs> no. of Not that I found anyway. <laughs> so catnip, okay, and, and valerian root. You know, I've taken like a tincture of valerian mm-hmm. root before, and I, I found that to be relaxing. Is that yeah. the typical way that that would be? How you'd use that with a tincture? Yeah, yeah, tincture I find is is the fastest way, mm-hmm. but they they are very bitter and hard to take so if that's too much of a trouble you can get it in a pill form Mm -hmm. and we'll just take a little longer to digest so you might need to think about it like an hour or two before bedtime Mm -hmm. whereas the tincture you know like oh i'm in bed already and i'm having trouble sleeping you can just have it by your bedside and take a dropper full with a with a swallow of water Mm -hmm. and it will get absorbed much quicker and that's a muscle you said a muscle relaxant so is that is that acting on the brain to relax the muscles, or is it going directly to the muscles? That's a good question. I haven't I haven't heard if they've figured out the mechanism for that. Right. Okay. That's I don't know if that's been as well studied as things like St. John's Wort, mm-hmm. just because people seem to gravitate more towards the psychoactive ones versus just the ones that have a bodily effect. Um, but strangely, cats also react to valerian. So if you want to keep your valerian and catnip stash for yourself, you might have to put it in a <laughs> sealed glass jar. Um, Hide it from the kitty. Yeah, and I've heard that they do... Some cats have a attraction to kava powder, too. So it seems like a lot of these things that have a psychoactive effect on humans also have different... A psychoactive effect on cats, mm-hmm. but they are attracted to it. So, Nat, I wanted to ask you a little bit about plants that enhance cognitive abilities and see what you think about that. I, I know there's some that I've heard been touted: ginkgo biloba, ginseng. 
Do you know anything about the efficacy of those for cognitive? Yeah, the um, ginkgo is great at increasing blood flow, especially to the brain. Uh-huh. So it's uh, supposed to be great for memory and folks with Alzheimer's. I'd say if you're worried about neurodegenerative disorders, which can counteract cognitive enhancement, turmeric is supposed to be really great, and that's commonly grown in Hawaii. It's called Olena here. Mm-hmm. I believe there was a study in the early 2000s, that almost unbelievable study, that people who had had even one or a few dishes of curry mm-hmm. in their life had a much lower tendency of wow. having Alzheimer's. So, huh. And they believe that's due to the curcumin and other compounds in the turmeric root. So if you're worried about cognitive decline, ginkgo and turmeric uh, would be great to combine in there. Mm-hmm. And what were the other ones that you asked about? Ginseng. But I want to say something about turmeric really, mm-hmm. really quick. We've gotten in the habit at our house to put a teaspoon of turmeric in every pot of rice that we're boiling. Mm. So we have yellow rice all the time. That's fun. But it's really good. It's tasty. It's kind of real mild and... I'm assuming it's probably good for us as well. It is, especially right now, because it turns out to be a great antiviral even against even against coronaviruses mm-hmm. in general. I don't know if it's been tested against COVID-19, but <clears throat> it's been shown to work against other coronaviruses like the common cold oh, wow. and um, bronchial viruses in the lab. So we put that in. We have a, a bar that we just released last year called the Corona. Be Well Bar that has the turmeric, elderflower, which is a great antiviral, uh, hibiscus flowers like you'd find in Jamaica or sorrel or red zinger tea, and shiso leaf, the mm-hmm. Japanese uh, kind of basil or beefsteak. Oh, yeah, that's plant. tasty. Yeah, we only put the tasty antiviral herbs in that bar. There, There's other ones that we could have put in, like holy basil, that are great antivirals, but they probably wouldn't go so well with the chocolate. And it, it was actually just uh, discovered a couple months ago that chocolate, the anthocyanins that give it the color that are touted for its antioxidant activity, prevent the reproduction of the COVID virus. Wow. They're protease inhibitors, so that has five ingredients now that are that are good antivirals so we say it's a tasty way to keep the virus away absolutely you are tuning into that with your turmeric rice (laughs) absolutely yeah so the turmeric has both antiviral uh, anti-alzheimer's and uh anti-inflammatory effects and probably the anti-inflammatory is how it's most well known yeah i should mention that you have your YouTube channel with a bunch of videos that you Mm. talk about some of these compounds and plants for antiviral that are really good. Yep. Yeah. So I encourage everybody to check out Natty by Nature on the YouTube channel to look at some of those episodes. Yeah. I should. I've been meaning to make one on turmeric for a while. Mm -hmm. Just have to wait for the right season when it's in. I want to catch it in bloom when it has those beautiful pink flowers. Right. That would be a great time to do it. Yep. So Nat, um, I know I really wanted to get into a section today talking about psychedelics, Mm -hmm. but I don't think, uh, I think we'll have to save that for another time because we've had such a good discussion on these other topics. Can I just do one little plug on the transition into psychedelics from these mood boosting Yes, of course. So I've talked a lot about foraging and growing plants. A lot of people might find that they feel a lot better being in nature than being in uh, sitting in traffic in a car or in an office. And, and that's not just a direct effect of stress, 
but it's been found in the last few years that there's actually uh, certain bacteria in the soil and in the plants that when you interact with them, when you're you know, harvesting your own plants or just walking in nature and, and digging in the dirt that you absorb some of the, these bacteria like um, uh, Mycobacterium vasii has been found to increase the production of serotonin. Hmm. So there's a, a direct correlation between like working in the dirt and feeling happier. You can not only uh, go for hikes and grow your own food if you can in your garden or your lanai, and, and these will help you feel feel much better without even having to take any any herbal supplements or antidepressants. So uh, that's a something that I think we all need right now during yeah. this last crazy year. Absolutely, and that's that's really amazing what you're talking about because I guess just being out in nature, enjoying the sounds of nature, mm-hmm. the wind, the birds, uh, being away from just the hustle bustle of. Uh, the concrete jungles uh, and just being out there in nature it, in and of itself would be calming and relaxing and, yep. and good for a person. Yep. But you're saying that there's actually research that the bacteria in the soil itself has a, an effect on the human body. Totally, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it just came out a few years ago. It's like, oh, that verifies everything I feel when I'm sitting uh, in my garden. I've set sure. up a few benches in my garden so I can just sit there and, you know, I'll be doing my work on the computer, but I just feel so much happier than even if I'm just inside uh, a few feet away. And I think it's largely due to the, the direct interaction with the soil bacteria. And I mean, people might say, well, you know, what do I do if I live in the middle of a giant city and I don't have a garden or a or Lanai where I can grow grow my own stuff. And if you just go to the park and and that's another good reason to do some foraging, then you're interacting with the soil and you're still getting those benefits. Sure. Most big cities have some kind of a park yeah. somewhat close by that one can go and walk around and be around plants and be around the soil. Yep. That's really important to do. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Has multiple positive effects on mental health. So Yeah. All the more reason to forage for your own food. Yeah, well, that's really fascinating. So thank you for that. Sure. So before we wrap up, are there any other thoughts that you have on the topic we've been discussing today that you wanted to share? Something I was thinking about with the foraging is just that in Western society, we kind of separate food and medicine, whereas I think a lot of what we've been talking about, we're seeing that many of these things that, that we eat and traditional cultures eat are both food and medicine at the same time. Mm. So they're not saying, oh, I'm feeling sick. I'm going to take some turmeric in a pill. Or right now I'm hungry. I'm going to have some turmeric in my rice. But they're putting it all together, and it's just uh-huh. a continuum. And I think we've gotten away from that uh, compared to what you see in more traditional cultures. Sure, that's a differentiation we seem to make in the West, that yep. there's medicine and there's food. Yep. And the two things are separated from each other. You get your medicine from a pharmacy. Right. And you get your food from a grocery store. Right. But both of them are growing together in the garden. Yeah. And you can, I, I feel you can absorb those things much better if they're in your food. And it doesn't feel like so much of a task. And uh, I mean, there are certain cult- cultures that feel that a medicine has to be bitter to be effective. But I don't think that's always true. Like elderflower is this amazing antiviral that works against coronaviruses. And I say this is a really good one to give to kids because it tastes great. It's not bitter at all. Mm-hmm. And it tastes a little like slightly anise with a nice floral flavor. So 
have no problem getting that down or the or the lilikoi fruit if you think of it both as a food and a medicine it can help chill out your kids if they've had too much chocolate mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome so uh dr nat bletter ethnobotanist owner of madre chocolate flavormeister and a whole lot more thank you so much for coming on the show today it was really interesting sure my pleasure thanks so much for having me Aaron. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.